make sure this is working properly, though. All right. Um, good morning. Glad you brothers have made it. I am going to um, get rolling. This morning we're going to spend some time on um, the rest of Daniel 9, dealing specifically with the 70 weeks. Obviously, last week I set up um, this vision of the 70 weeks by going through Daniel's prayer. Um, we've already looked to some degree at the setup of the 70 weeks by going through Daniel um, 2 and 7. Um, and then, of course, we'll, we'll look at it again a bit in 10 through 12, chapters 10 through 12, so we'll see that kind of come back. So um, with that said, I'll pray and we'll get rolling. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We are thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that we have a chance to um, have life and breath and, and give that to you. We pray that this day we would um, offer our bodies a living sacrifice, that we would um, offer ourselves to you fully, completely, trust you, and hear your voice. We pray as we look at the book of Daniel that you would help us to understand this vision that um, was given to Daniel the prophet by your spirit for the sake of your church in every generation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so turn with me, if you will, to Daniel 9. I want to remind you, um, last week we were going through the prayer of Daniel. And during the prayer of Daniel, um, he had been asking the Lord specifically um, when the exile was going to end. And if you remember, he, he had been praying in light of the fact that Darius had become king because there were um, 70 years decreed by Jeremiah um, to give the land its Sabbaths. Um, 70 years decreed by Jeremiah, or 70 Sabbaths, if you will, one year for each Sabbath year. Um, they were decreed by Jeremiah for, for the exile of Israel under Babylon. Uh, but the exile was going to end, uh, according to both Isaiah and Jeremiah, once Babylon came to an end, once Nebuchadnezzar came to an end. And when they say Nebuchadnezzar, they don't just mean Nebuchadnezzar, but if you remember I said like that would include like his children and grandchildren. So he comes to an end. Um, Babylon comes to an end after Belshazzar. Remember, we, you would have read about that in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, he comes to an end. And then in comes Cyrus the Persian, Darius and Darius the Mede. I'm not saying they're the same guy. There are some scholars who argue they are. I don't think that's the case. Um, but Cyrus is, uh, Cyrus is the leader of Persia and Darius of Media. And those two kingdoms come together as one kingdom called Medo-Persia or Media-Persia. Um, when they come in, um, it says Daniel sees Darius as the king at the time, at least in his region, and what Daniel does is begins to pray because he realizes we need to repent in accord with Leviticus 26, if you guys remember us looking there. We need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive us um, so that we might be taken out of exile back into the land. And he knew the time had come. So he was asking the Lord for when, when a new exodus was coming, if you remember. He uses that exodus language saying, when's a new exodus coming? Why a new exodus? What, the controlling motif, I, I, I think it's important to understand this, the controlling motif of the Old Testament is the exodus. Um, 
The, the, the major figure you hear about in the Old Testament is Moses, right? He's, he's the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. He's the man who um, leads Israel out of Egypt uh, and back toward the Promised Land. Remember, he takes them out and up the Mount, Mount Sinai where they get the law. They're called the kingdom of priests, etc. cetera. Uh, they get the tabernacle, all of that. That becomes a controlling motif for the whole of the Old Testament. I would argue Exodus becomes a controlling motif in the New Testament as well. Um, I think I've told you guys this before, I teach a biblical theology of the book of Luke and Acts uh, at Radius, which when we get to Luke and Acts, you'll hear a lot of that here. <laughs> um, but I teach a, the a biblical theology of the book of Luke and Acts, and one of the things I help the students understand is that Luke and Acts is really um, a story of New Exodus, and um, written by the same author. But you see that go, the Exodus theme actually go throughout Genesis before it comes to Exodus. You're like, what? Go throughout Genesis. Well, just think about a couple of scenes just as examples. Where does um, Abraham head early on after the Abrahamic promises are made? Where does he go? Egypt. He goes to Egypt. While there, what does he tell his wife, Sarai? Yeah, tell them you're my sister, right? It's a half-truth. She is, she is related to him that way, too, but by marriage. Tell them you're my sister. He's a bit afraid that her beauty is going to get him in some trouble. So she does. The Lord spares them from his sinful stupidity and lack of trust. And he's sent out of Egypt. So he goes down into Egypt. And he comes up out of Egypt. And what does he come out with? Does anybody remember? all kinds of possessions from the Pharaoh. Now, you recognize that theme, I think, right? So um, you see that over and over again in Egypt. And the reason you see that Exodus theme is because you come all the way back to Genesis 3, 2 and 3. Um, and I, I'm setting you up because I want you to understand what Daniel's asking for is a new Exodus. When's it going to happen? But I want to come back to, Dan to Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2, God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. Ezekiel tells us that Eden is a mountain um, with a garden. And on that mountain, up on that mountain, Adam and Eve dwell with God. They worship God. They dwell with God. All is well. Adam is called both a priest and a king. He's also a prophet inasmuch as he's supposed to speak the truth right, in accord with God's word. But he's a, he's a priest who's supposed to keep, um, which is to guard, and serve the garden, Genesis 2.15. That phrase in Hebrew, serve and keep or guard, in Genesis 2.15, is, is always and only used of priests in the Levitical texts. So he's, a, he's a, like a priest in Leviticus, Adam then and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden, they're exiled, and they go down the mountain, out behind the gate, where the cherubim guard the way back in, right, with the flaming sword. So they're, they're outside of Eden now, they've gone down. Um, when you're, if you're at Sovereign Grace on Sunday, you're going to see Cain sent further down, further away into exile. Um, that going down from the mountain is death. 
that's the theme of death. You're going down into death, death being separation from God and all that that entails, no longer being in his dwelling place and the curse that comes with that, right? So that's the picture. They want to get back up, but they can't get back in through, that, through those cherubim and the flaming sword. You guys remember that? When they're given a tabernacle after the exodus, tabernacle looks like a mountain, doesn't it? So let me give you the scene. Israel, God's firstborn son, Exodus 4, comes up out of Egypt, which you know, if you notice the language in the Bible, they always go down into Egypt and they come up out of Egypt, right? Comes out of Egypt, up out of Egypt. Um, when they do so, they're coming up out of the kingdom of the dead. You guys remember, Egypt's obsessive about death and that's picked up intentionally. Coming up out of the land of death and they go up to where? They go up to Mount Sinai. And Abraham ascends, I mean, Moses ascends the mountain. He's the only one who can. So Moses ascends the mountain. He gets the law. They dwe he dwells with God there for a short period of time. And God gives them a tabernacle. Tabernacle looks like a what? Or temples look like a what? A mountain. There's a reason for that, right? Where only the priest can go up into the Holy of Holies in that place. Uh, only the high priest and only once a year can he go through the cherubim that are on the curtain between the holy place and the Holy of Holies, right? Where God dwells representatively for Israel. So we see that theme go throughout the Old Testament so that Israel continues to recognize that our, our desire is to dwell with God in that temple, um, but we have a real problem we have to face, and we get dealt with once a year on the Day of Atonement. You guys remember that, okay? Um, but they're constantly praying for their new exodus. You'll see it all over the prophets. Uh, when is this new exodus coming? Um, and, and here is what you're hearing Daniel praying for. He's also praying for this new exodus. An exodus out of a wicked nation, Babylon, and land, and back to Israel where they can rebuild the temple. Right? You guys remember that language. So that's what they're going to ask. That's what Daniel's asking about. While he's praying, Gabriel, an angel, sent to him. Okay? Um, Gabriel comes and and is going to answer his prayers, okay? He's going to tell them what the answer is. So look at verse 24 of Daniel 9. Um, we're going to look there and see what he says. Seventy weeks, chap chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are decre decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. All right, 70 weeks are decreed. Now I wanna, I wanna consider that for a moment. Um, we already looked at the reason why they had 70 years in exile. Anybody remember? Why 70 years? Those were tied to what? unobserved Sabbath years. Now, if you remember how that works, okay, every um, seventh day, Israel is to take a Sabbath, right? Holy of the Lord, they, they rest on the Sabbath and worship. Rest there, by the way, does not mean lounging around on your couch, just, if we're, just in case people are unclear. Rest does not mean cessation of, of all activity. Rest means cessation of secular activity. 
In other words, you put aside your secular work and you worship. So rest there is worship, no longer doing secular activity. Um, there are exceptions in the Old Testament for that, obviously. Like if your ox falls in a ditch, that would be secular work to pull it out of the ditch. But of course you would do that because you want to help. Or you see somebody physically in need and you help them. Those are kinds of exceptions to secular activity. But that's what the Pharisees don't seem to understand. Jesus has to correct, if you guys remember. But the, the point is, is that they are to rest from their regular work and use that day for worship. Seventh day. Every seven years, what were they supposed to do? On the seventh year, they're supposed to let, let the land rest, right? If you guys remember. Um, let the land rest. And then every seventh seven, as to years, or after 49 years, what were they supposed to do? The year of Jubilee. Slaves go free. You guys remember all of that, okay? That's seven sevens, right? So they don't allow the, the seventh years or the Sabbath years to be observed. So God says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to exile you one year for every sa- Sabbath year that you let go unobserved, right? So he takes 70 Sabbath years. So I just want to do the math for you, okay, just so we can get a hold of that. 70 Sabbath years is, is 70 what? S- Sabbath year comes every what? Seventh year. So 70 Sabbath years is 77s, isn't it? What's that? 490 years. Okay, so let's, let's look. 70 weeks um, is, is not any different than saying 70 Sabbaths, 70 Sabbath years, Okay. Seventy weeks are decreed about you and your people, about your people and your holy city. So let's talk about that. Your people being Daniel's people, um, God's people, the people whom God has covenanted with, right? Okay, your people. Speaking specifically here of Israel and your what? Holy city, where is that? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where the temple is. Okay, so now where does he get that? notion so we can define it i'm going to remind you look at jeremiah 25 just so you know we've looked at this already last week but i'm going to remind you of these things uh, because important as we look at these weeks jeremiah 25 and verse 11 now remind you jeremiah okay i'm going to say this over and over again because i think people lose sight of it when you're reading the prophets it's so important you understand what the role of the prophets is The prophets take God's law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They take God's law, and they take their history, Israel's history, Joshua through kings, right? Their history. And the prophets stand up, and they hold God's law up, and they say, here's what God commanded you to do. Here's what you did with your history, like a prosecuting attorney, right? Now, here's why God's judgment that he said was coming upon you, for example, in Leviticus 26, is in fact coming upon you, um, why the curse is coming. And then they say, but God is going to bring you into a new exodus, a new covenant, a better situation. So that's their role. So 2511, look there, 2511, this whole land shall become a ruin 
and a waste, that's speaking about Israel, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, how long? 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Um, I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Okay, so 70 years are decreed. Now, go over to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles. We looked at this last week too, but I want to remind you again, 2 Chronicles. In the Jewish order of the canon, where does 2 Chronicles fall? The Hebrew order of the canon, the one that Jesus would have read, where does 2 Chronicles fall? Anybody remember? It's the last book of the Old Testament, right? Um, we, we now put it with the historical books, but technically... Um, Second Chronicles would have been a different section of literature. It would not have been with Kings and Samuel um, in Hebrew literature. We put it there because it recounts history, and we, we, have separate, we don't do former prophets, latter prophets, like Hebrews do. We do history prophets, or history wisdom prophets. So, um, but this would have been in the writings. In other words, this would have been packaged, sec, first Second Chronicles, when we get to it, which we'll actually get to it last, too, in the Old Testament. When we get to it, it would have been packaged with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Songs, Daniel, etc. Um, that's who which second, first Second Chronicles would have been packaged with. But look there at the end, Second Chronicles 36, and um, I want to look specifically... Um, let, let's just go, let's read a little bit more than I have here. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Remember, the king of the Chaldeans is, that's the Babylonians, or Nebuchadnezzar. He brought against them Israel, who killed the young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, or the temple, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Now this is the chronicler telling you what had happened in Israel, okay? It goes on, and they burned the house of God, the temple, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. You remember, that's why in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to go back and try to rebuild what? The wall and the temple, Right? And their houses. And they get rebuked, by the way, by one of the post-exilic prophets for trying to rebuild their homes, but not the temple, if you guys remember. Um, all right, it goes on. He took them, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, like, so think about this, who became servants to, Bab to, to the king of Babylon, of the Jews. You guys remember? Who did? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know those three as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I think that we think those names are more fun to say. Their, their God-fearing names are actually in Daniel, and their pagan names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We should teach our children their 
God-believing names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also there. Um, not the pagan names they were given. But anyway, here they are. They, he, he took into ba- exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Right? That's what we're looking at in Daniel's prayer. The establishment of the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Um, Cyrus is the anointed one, the Messiah, who's going to let the people go. Isaiah is quite clear about that. He's a type of the ultimate Messiah, right? Um, All right, so to fulfill, notice that to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its what? Sabbaths. Now I point that out. The land has a Sabbath every what? Seven years. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So one year for every Sabbath year, or 70 times 7, or 70 weeks. Now in the first year of King Cyrus, uh, Cyrus king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, thus says Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Okay, so that's the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, to return to the land, for the Jews to return to the land and rebuild the temple and the wall. All right. I'm bringing all that up because it becomes important. The 70 years have been multiplied by seven. Um, they're multiplied by seven. Have been is a little bit probably the wrong grammar. The point is the 70 years are one year for every seven years, right? For every Sabbath year, okay? Um, so 70 sevens. So notice he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. 70 sevens. And your holy city, right? Now, they've been in the period, the exile of 70 years. They've been in the exile of the 70 years, when Daniel's praying and he realizes it's ended, it's coming to an end because now Medo-Persia has come in, he asks for an answer. When is, when is this going to change? When are we going to get the new exodus? And the answer from the Lord is in 77s. Right? What was Daniel expecting? Most likely. The 70 years of exile are over? It's coming now. Right? But nope. 77s are decreed. This will be somewhat troubling to Daniel, by the way. Right? Um, 77s are decreed. So, oh man. Right? Seven, 77s more. Right? Um, all right. Till what? But, but notice what's being said here. To finish transgression. I've listed it up here. To finish transgression. To put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint the Holy of Holies. Okay, um, so let's talk about that. That's a pretty significant list of accomplishments at the end of the 77s, isn't it? All right, that isn't just, when are we going back to the land? Now that would be an exodus to go back to the land, to go back up to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but but that seems to be speaking to a lot more, doesn't it? Um, perhaps then it seems at first that Daniel was asking, 
It seems at first that Daniel's asking, when does the exile end and we go back to the land and rebuild the temple? And the answer he's giving, being given is uh, the answer to the end of all things. He's been given a much greater answer. In fact, their exodus out of Babylon back to Israel is going to be a picture of the greatest exodus to come. You, you guys follow me on that? And the greatest exodus to come is coming in 77s, at which time transgression will be finished. Right? There will be an end of sin. Iniquity will be atoned for. Um, so I'm, I'm going to push on this because I have, I have some guys in here. Um, does Isaiah use any language like this? Yeah? Where does he use this kind of language? Sure. Isaiah 53, right? Okay, so I, be, before we go on, I just want to look over there really quickly. Look at Isaiah 53. We could pull in more of Isaiah, by the way, but we don't have all day. So uh, Isaiah, the entire book ha has bearing, particularly from chapter 40 on, but there's some per pretty compelling stuff in, in some other chapters that would also have bearing, um, particularly chapter 32. Um, anyway, but let's look at just... 53. Now, if you remember, I want to back up for just a second. If, if you remember in Isaiah 52, the announcement comes in Isaiah 52, where, where, where you have this, this one who comes on the mountain, and you hear how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Okay? Isaiah 52, 7. Paul will later pick that up and change the pronoun from of him who brings the good news to of those who bring the good news. So he'll change that in Romans 10, 15, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But he's changed the pronoun because he's basically saying we're standing in the place of him who brings the good news. Who's the him who brings the good news? Well, the him who brings the good news is the servant of God. Um, but you know what, just because it's important I do this, we went through Isaiah before, but I want to remind you, who's the servant? Look at Isaiah um, 49 really quickly, and then we'll look at 53. We're in a whole section about the servant. Um, 42 tells us there's going to be an, a covenant cut, and this servant actually will be the new covenant. He, he himself will be the new covenant, this servant. Um, we're also told who he is in 40, Isaiah 41, but I'll just look at his, his identity in 49. Isaiah 49, let's look there, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. This is, this is the servant speaking. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, which is the language that Revelation picks up. Remember the sword coming from his mouth. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. I also think, by the way, Hebrews 4 picks up the sharp sword language. Made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. He said to, and he said to me, you are my servant, who? Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So this servant in Isaiah 40 and following, particularly 41, 42 and following, is who? Israel. Okay, you guys can read the Bible literally, right? It's Israel. That's the servant. 
Um, now, when I say Israel, what am I talking about? This is not a trick question. The nation, right? I'm talking about the people of God, Israel, this chosen people, right? But I also want you to remember that Israel is also referred to in Exodus 4 as my firstborn son. My firstborn son. Okay, so he goes on. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, that's not enough for you to do, right? What else are you going to do? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end, to the end of the earth, Okay? So you're not just going to save Jews, you're going to save Gentiles too. And by the way, this passage is picked up by Simeon in Luke 2. You guys remember that? Jesus is brought in as an infant into the temple. Simeon sees him, picks him up, and says basically the consolation of Israel's come in the spirit. And then he quotes this text and says this is about Jesus. Now, most of us have a hard time reading these passages because we don't understand that the, the point is that the federal head is the representative of a people. Jesus is true Israel. That's what's being taught to you when you get to the Gospels. He is true Israel. That's why he gets 12 apostles, because there were 12 tribes. That's why he appoints 70. Just like there were 70 elders in Israel, he appoints 70. This, these numbers aren't just like Jesus is just obsessed with no, certain numbers or something, right? It's, he's intentionally demonstrating the reconstitution of Israel and himself. Um, as he leads them on the Exodus. Now, he comes on the mountain proclaiming good news, and then we hear this language. Look at Isaiah um, 52, 13. We'll start reading there. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they will see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, or men, sorry, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one whom men, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought what? Us, peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears of silence, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put into grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be what? Accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So we're seeing this language of, of and was, there's several other places, putting an end to sin, finishing transgression, atoning for iniquity, and bringing in some kind of righteousness. Ultimately, everlasting righteousness to seal. So we can see this in various other places. I want to give you one example, right? But when you get to the New Testament, Christ is called our what? Our righteousness and sanctification. Um, he's the one who puts an end to sin. He finishes it, the transgression, right? Atones for iniquity. But what about sealing both vision and prophecy or prophet? Sealing both vision and prophet. What could that mean, Daniel 9.24? To seal both vision and prophet. Well, I'm going to tell you the language is actually in the book of Daniel for it. Most of us don't pay a lot of attention, but look back at chapter 8 briefly. Back at chapter 8. Now, now notice this. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Remember, we're in the third kingdom here, or Greece, and we're, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes IV um, in Greece. And when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. This is Gabriel coming to him again. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Which is fascinating because he's only in the third kingdom at this point. But he's telling you that Antiochus Epiphanes IV in some way pictures a greater antichrist, if you will. Okay. Um, now he's going to go on um, and he's going to tell him... Um, <clears throat> He's going to tell him to seal up the vision. He spoke to me about Medo-Persia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Drop all the way down um, to verse, let me see here. Go all the way down to um, 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings. Remember, there were, there were 2,300 evenings and mornings, or about three and a half years. Um, 360 days in a year because you're using a lunar calendar. Um, or 28 days per month, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that had been told is true, but seal up the vision. For it refers to what? Many days from now. Notice the vision is sealed up. And um, Daniel's appalled by the vision and doesn't understand it. Right? Okay, go, go to Daniel um, chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Eight, or 10 through 12 is another section we'll look at 
next week, but go to chapter 12. No, notice what happens again. He gets this picture of everlasting righteousness. So verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was nation till that time. A nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. What, what does that sound like? Resurrection. That's because it is. Right? Shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, o, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. We keep dealing with those numbers, don't we? Three and a half years, a year, two years, um, and a half a year. So it's three and a half years. We deal with it there. We deal with it in Daniel 7. Deal with it in the 2300 mornings and evenings, et cetera, et cetera. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away... And the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. We'll look at all that next week. But you go your way until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. All right. So what's he supposed to do with this prophecy and vision? He's supposed to seal it up until the time of the end. Right? Seal it up till the time of the end. This is what he means by the sealing both of vision and prophet, right? 70 weeks are decreed for the sealing of both vision and prophet. Now, when do these seals get open? Well, just in case you guys weren't aware, this language is picked up expressly by John in the Revelation, and you see the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5, and Jesus on the throne, and you hear the cry that he's the one Finally, the one who's worthy to break the seals, to open the seals, to read the book, if you will, and he opens them, right? Um, now you start to find out what was sealed up by Daniel so long ago, okay? Um, that's what we mean by sealing both vision and prophet. Um, all right, and to anoint the holy of holies, which is interesting language. Notice that in your ESV it says, and to anoint a most holy place, does anybody have a different version on 924 at the last phrase? Besides anointing most holy place? What's your what's your footnote say? It says, or thing or 
Yeah, it can be. We can translate it, that Hebrew, by the way, to anoint a most holy place, a most holy thing, or a most holy one. And the King James, they say, to anoint um, the Messiah. Um, anoint, by the way, is the word for Messiah. So the holy Messiah. Um, it could be the holy of holies. I put to anoint the holy of holies. I actually think um, that's not different than saying the Messiah. Uh, say, what do you mean? What does Jesus refer to himself as? Tear down this what? Temple and I will rebuild it in three days, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled in the Greek among us, right? Um, he is the indwelling of God among us, right? Um, and then he ascends the mountain, doesn't he? Mount Zion to heavenly Jerusalem and carries us there with him. It's a lot there to that. But um, let's continue on. So these are the things that will be accomplished. The first 69 weeks. So let's look at the first 69 weeks in Daniel 9, 25 and 26. I actually think that the ESV is somewhat unhelpful in their translation here and the way they break it down grammatically. But notice verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an, of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. They should not have a period and then, then there. Just so you know, it should be there shall be 70, or, excuse, seven weeks and for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in troubled time. In other words, it's seven weeks and 62 weeks. Um, so you have seven weeks and 62 weeks that are actually being taken together as 69 weeks but they're being divided into two parts. The first part of the 69 being 7, the second part of the 69 being 62. You guys see how that would be? Okay. I don't like the grammar because it's a bit misleading here. In the first seven weeks, what are we told is going to happen? Know therefore understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. All right. So, um, there's going to be Seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? The, and for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Okay. Um, so there's going to be 69 weeks, right, total. Seven weeks for the rebuild, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to its rebuilding, essentially. And... 62 more weeks until the coming of the prince. You guys follow me so far? But it's going to be rebuilt for a time. Okay, so. Um, I, I, I think it's really simple to say that. Um, I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to break this down or not. Yeah, look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city of the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. All right, so um, notice the break. There's going to be, uh, that should be 925, the next phrase should be 926. But there's, in the first seven weeks, the city is going to be rebuilt. 
Okay, seven weeks is how many years? 49. Roughly 49. When is the decree to rebuild it? Yeah, with Cyrus, we would think that should be the right answer, right? Based on the fact that what we've already read in Second Chronicles, what we've read in Jeremiah, what we've read in Isaiah, that Cyrus is the one who gives a decree to rebuild it, right? Uh, and I think that's the right answer. That comes about 539, 538, 539 BC. Just so you know, we'll get to that in a minute. But after the 62 weeks, the following is going to happen, right? Notice that after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, or Messiah, that's what that word means, Messiah shall be cut off, and we say, and shall have nothing. Okay? Um, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The King James, I think, translates this a little better. It says, an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. I think that's probably a better translation. After the 62 weeks, or so the 69 weeks, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. Um, and then you go in, it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Okay, so... Um, I, I want to talk about this for a minute. Here's what I'm going to propose is happening. In the first seven weeks, the city's being rebuilt. Then for 62 weeks, they continue to have their city, or for so a total of 69 weeks. They've, from the time they're sent back, rebuild, to the time 69 weeks passes, okay? They've rebuilt their city, but in a troubled time. Now, is it a troubled time for Israel that whole time? Yes, they're under Medo-Persia, they're under Greece, they're under Rome. You guys remember that? They're oppressed by all those nations. This is going to map onto Daniel's vision and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember, you're under Babylon, then you're under Medo-Persia, then you're under Greece, then you're under Rome, then the kingdom of God comes. Okay? And the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. And then this prince of the, the, the people, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. Okay, so the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the temple. Its end will come with a flood. Until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Here's where scholars begin to argue and for good reason, but they begin to argue, is the people of the prince who is to come, um, the prince who is to come there, a reference to the Messiah, who you've, we've mentioned about the Messiah being cut off, or is the prince that keeps being, an, uh, uh, that, that's mentioned here, um, a wicked ruler? Um, like an antichrist. I would take it as, I would take him as an antichrist. Um, and not as speaking of the Christ, but we'll get to that in a minute. The 70th week is two parts of one unit. Let's look there so we don't take this completely out of context and keep going. And he shall make, that's the people, that's the prince of the, of the people. He shall make a covenant, a strong covenant with many for one week. 
And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out for the desolator. Okay. Again, you have two parts of one week. So you have two parts of 69 weeks. You have two parts of one week. You guys following that? Okay. Um, the 70th week, he will make a firm covenant or strong covenant for one week. For half a week, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. I want to pay attention to that because it's not just the, desolate, the abomination that causes desolation, but it's a desolator. Someone who is himself the desolator. Okay? Um, on the wing of the abominations will come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay? Mark will pick up that language, by the way. Now, <laughs> um, I want to come back to this before I try to unwind a little bit more. What's the primary question in every vision of Daniel? The dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the vision that Daniel has in 7, chapter 7, and then what we'll see again in 10 through 12, and even in chapter 8. What's, what's the primary question in every one? The primary question is how long until the new exodus? How long until the restoration of Israel? Right? To a restored how long until the kingdom of God comes? Right? Every single vision. That's the question. What I'm saying is, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, in a little more typologically veiled way, Daniel 9 and Daniel 10 through 12 are all answering that same question. And they're all answering it the same way. Um, they're not giving different answers. They're giving more texture or filling in the picture more. But they're all answering this way. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the kingdom of God. Okay? And then they're filling in that picture more. Here's what it's going to look like a bit under Medo-Persia. Here's what it's going to look like a bit under Greece. Here's what it's going to look like a bit under Rome. Here's what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes and is cut off and then this kind of antichrist figure comes. You guys following me so far? Okay. The disagreements that, happen, that, that circle around what particular texts point to are less important than the big picture. So I want to be clear about that. Guys argue about the details. Guys, I respect. In my eschatological perspective, um, and in the eschatological perspective I once held as a dispensationalist. Everybody argues about the details here. Everybody argues about the details here. So I'm not saying we shouldn't try to find any kind of answer to them. I just want to say we need to be really careful that we don't stake our entire view of these texts on um, some of the disputes over particular details because there's a big picture here that is really mattering. When is the new exodus coming? When is the restoration of Israel coming? When is the kingdom of God coming? And the answer is, after the fourth kingdom, right? And we get some more information there. Okay, so, um, are the 70 years decreed uh, for exile? So I want to ask this question. The 70 years are decreed for exile. There shouldn't be a comma there. Are they 70 literal, literally enumerated years? So in Daniel 9.1, um, when he says seven, he talks about the 70 years decreed for Israel. Are they 70 literally enumerated years? Okay. Um, 
I put Isaiah 23, 15 there for a reason. Can somebody read that for me really quickly? And then Psalm 90, verse 10. Tim, you want to take Psalm 90, verse 10? Um, I want to point out this question of are they 70 literally enumerated years? Uh, who's, got, who's got Isaiah 23, 15? Curtis, go ahead. Okay, Tyre will be forgotten for how long? Tyre's wicked nation, 70 years, and then what's the 70 years compared to? Like the days of one king, okay? And that's the language we hear with regard to the exile of Israel, isn't it? You'll be exiled until the end of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, or Babylon, 70 years decreed for you. Okay, how about Psalm 90, verse 10? Okay, it's a very uplifting text. You're going to, generally life's about 70 years. If by reason of strength, you know, 80. And then you're dead. And basically it's a lot of toil and trouble from there till death and you fly away. Okay, so it's a very uplifting text. The point is 70 years is the average span of a man's life or a king's life and that's being picked up. The reason I picked that up is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are likely carried away from Jerusalem in about 605 BC. That's not when the entire desolation of Jerusalem takes place with the destruction of the city and the temple, which is in the 580s, right? But they're likely carried away in 605 BC. So we're going to pick 605 BC as, the, as the, the earliest possible date they're carried away. And we'll say, let's start the exile there. Okay, because there is some language about the exile will start when these young men are carried away to serve the king. You guys remember that, okay? Um, in Second Chronicles. So let's start the exile there at 605 BC. Cyrus becomes king. Um... And, and Medo-Persia takes over and kills Belsh Belshazzar, takes over the kingdom in approximately 539 BC, okay? And decrees for the people to return. Let's say 538 is, is the most, most um, generous late year. How many years is that? 67 years, okay? Is the Bible wrong? It said 70. But this is somewhere between, if you take 586 to 539, the shortest possible span, how many years is that? That is 47. 47 years to 67 years is about the biggest possible window. So is the Bible um, in error? No. Nope. Correct. So it's talking about the time of a generation or the, the span of the rule of one king, if you will, and or his life. And it's talking about 70 years. We're talking here with sacred time. We're not talking about 70 
literally enumerated years. We're talking about um, it's a prophetic way um, of saying you violated the land for 70 Sabbath years. You're going to be... Um, you're going to be exiled for 70 Sabbath years under this one king whose span of life is about 70 years. Okay. I, I realize you're like, wow, that's kind of crazy, but that's, they don't, that, you cannot take your modern Western way of doing timelines and, and try to read it back into the Old Testament. Right? You have to read these things the way they read them. You guys follow me on that? Okay. We want to make them read things right, right the way we read rather than us learn to read the way they write. Okay. Um, it's just not 70 years. So here's the question. Are the 70 weeks or the 77s speaking to 490 literally enumerated years? Right? So let's, let's do a little lesson on counting real quickly before I run out of time um, from Ezekiel 4. So just keep your hand there. Go over to Ezekiel 4 really quickly. Um, and, and yes, my language I know is a little bit sarcastic there, a lesson on counting. Um, I know you all know how to count. But Ezekiel 4. And I, I want you to understand, this, this, is not, this is not common core math happening in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> All right, Ezekiel 4. And you, verse 1, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave it on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you... Take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. Let it be a, set in, in, a state, sorry, in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. It's not a judgment coming for Israel, right? Okay. Now notice it's in a vision. It's an odd vision. Look what it goes on to say. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it for the number of the days that you lie on it. You shall bear their punishment. He's going to lay on, their, on his left side for how long? For I assigned you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. Okay, how long is he laying on his side total? 430 days, a day for each year. What does that have to do with anything? Anybody? Anybody remember the 430 years? What does that have to do with anything? Is that the time between How long is, Egypt, is Israel in captivity in Egypt? That's where I'm 430 years for their disobedience, okay? We need to be careful about how we look at time because they're using intentional language prophetically to point to things. Israel was disobedient for in 30 years, right? Okay. Um, and then, then their, their exodus came, if you will. You're going to see the same kind of thing under the kings, right, for a huge period of time. And Ezekiel's pointing to that, all right? 
Um, now, um, I also want you to understand that 77s is a tenfold jubilee. Okay? Of 70 weeks. What do we mean by that? Okay? Um, or 77 is a tenfold jubilee. If you have um, 490 years, right, um, you have a pointer toward 10 jubilees. 10 jubilees would be the 49th year 10 times. Right? You guys follow that? Why does that matter? Um, when the Christ comes, what is he going to declare? Look at Isaiah 61 really quickly. Isaiah 61, again, same set of passages. Look there, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the jubilee. He's coming to declare the jubilee. By the way, next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, I'm, I, I, interestingly, when Jesus comes in in Luke 4, after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, he walks into the synagogue, if you guys remember this, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, goes to this passage, reads it, Stop short of the day of vengeance of our God, leaves that out, and says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one bringing in the jubilee. But not yet the vengeance, the day of vengeance. Not yet the day of vengeance. Um, okay. So we're pointing toward this jubilee, this tenfold jubilee. Or if you will, a tenfold jubilee would be the, would be the ultimate jubilee. Right? The ultimate year. Okay, so basic prophetic timeline kind of wrap up. The first seven weeks, I believe, is a reference to the period from post-exile through Malachi or through the, the, the period in which, if you will, the prophets go quiet. At the end of Malachi, the prophets go quiet, right? No more, how long do they not, they don't hear for 400 plus years, right, from the prophets. The first seven weeks is a reference. 539 B.C., the decree, right, to leave the exile, to go back to Jerusalem, about roughly seven weeks or 49 years later or so, somewhere in that period, um, the prophets go quiet. They don't hear from him again until John the Baptist. You guys remember that? Okay. The next 62 weeks is a reference from, to the period of prophetic silence until the coming of Jesus. In other words, what I'm saying is from the decree to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city and the temple, until um, the book of Malachi, if you will, the last prophet speaks, seven weeks, from the last prophet speaking until the coming of the Christ, 62 weeks, okay? So approximately 490 years uh, or what's here, 483 years. Now, if you try to make that literal, you have a problem. Okay, because when does Jesus end up coming then? 483, okay, 539 minus 483. 
Where does that put you? Huh? Century BC. So into the first century BC. But not into the life and ministry of Jesus. Unless you want to move the decree. So what a lot of guys do is they say, well, it wasn't Cyrus's decree. It was the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple in 400 and something BC. So you count at 450 something. So if you count from there to the baptism um, or death of Christ, you land somewhere around 27 to 30 AD. And so now we've gotten there by 483 literally enumerated years. I think it misses the point. I think that misses the point. I don't think we have to do that. Um, so, not in the way they're using it here. But roughly, a shorter period of time, right? And a much longer period of time, okay? Um, if someone can prove to me that it's not the decree of Cyrus, though it seems the text keeps saying that, <laughs> but it's a later decree, you know, some 70 years later or so under Artaxerxes, great. But I haven't seen anybody prove that. Scholars monkey about with the years, and then they try to recount them, and are we using a Jewish calendar? Are we using this kind of count? You know, and then they account for leap years, and they try to get you to 27 to 30 AD, certain scholars. I just think that's a bit of a futile ex exercise, to be honest with you. Um, the point is, where are we supposed to get? To the, to the kingdom of God, which comes at the end of the fourth kingdom, or Rome. All right, so we know we're getting into the Roman Empire, right? Um, the first half of the 70th week is a reference to Rome typically cutting off worship in 70 AD. Now, why do I say that? And then other wicked nations doing the same until the final desolator or the Antichrist. In other words, I want to argue that Nero and General Titus under Nero is a type of the Antichrist and is... The prince of the people, i.e. the Roman people, who cut off worship in the temple and destroyed the temple. You guys know that in between 67 and 70 AD, General Titus surrounds Jerusalem, which by the way, Jesus tells them is going to happen in Luke 21. You'll see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. And what does he do? He destroys the city and pulls every temple stone down, which Jesus also tells them is going to happen. He actually says, in your lifetime. This Haganea um, Haute in the Greek, this generation, will see the destruction of the temple. Remember, he goes outside and points at the temple and says, you're going to see it, not one stone will land on A generation for them is about 40 years. Um, Jesus is killed probably in AD 33. Um, the temple's torn down around AD 70. Right? Um, and that generation sees it. They surround the city. They sack it. It's horrible. By the way, he tells the Christians to flee. You guys remember that warning? Flee. Flee the city. It's going to be horrible. Um, everything he says happens. I mean, the people are cut down. The blood runs the streets. Mothers are actually boil, you know, eating their children. Um, and the Christians, we don't, that, from our records, no Christians die because they all leave. Interestingly enough. Yes, sir. He does. Yep, they are. They, he does talk about the Jews killing themselves, which probably is true because it's so bad, right? So, but it's 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 a it's a disaster. I think Josephus is helpful and controversial as to how much he embellishes the history. 
So it's, it's, it's a little difficult. But yes, um, we, we ultimately don't entirely know what happens in the scene um, historically because we have Josephus to lean on. Eusebius, it comes a few hundred years later. We have a couple other guys at the time period who give us some information. But most of what we have is um, the prophecy of the New Testament and some records that are, we kind of piece together. My point is, um, it seems to be pointing to that and the reason being Mark 13, 14 talks about the desolator who's coming. There's a lot to get into there. But what I'm saying is what we see that's true of Titus, General Titus, Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the second century BC, General Titus and or Nero in 67 to 70 AD is a type. In other words, it's not the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist, but they're types of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, um, they picture the Antichrist. That's what I'm telling you. So you have types of the Christ in the Old Testament, right? Um, and you have types of the Antichrist, if you will, that come throughout history through wicked nations or rulers who oppress God's people. Um, John will say there are many Antichrists, obviously, and so then there's some debate over is there an Antichrist or are there many Antichrists? I think 2 Thessalonians and some of what happens in Revelation 6 through 20 points to the notion of, of a final Antichrist, um, but I'm not dealing with those passages today. So <laughs> the point is... Um, that, that seems to be the timeline. The last half of the 70th week seems to be a reference to final judgment and the consummation of the kingdom, which is what you pick up in Revelation 21 and following. So the last half of the 70th week. So the 70th week is broken into two, and the first half seems to be focused on that period of time in which um, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, etc., which Jesus points to, which is somewhere roughly about three and a half years. And then the last, remember Revelation keeps picking up time, times, and half a time as well. Or it picks up the same kind of prophetic calendar of three and a half years all through Revelation, if you guys remember that. Seems to be pointing to that last period of time. Um, all right. You say, does that resolve all your questions? No. Am I going to resolve all your questions? No. This is why um, nobody's questions are resolved about the 70th week. We all agree that um, prior to the 70th week, or somewhere around the 70th week, the Messiah is cut off. I don't care if you're a dispensational premillennialist or you're a postmillennialist, right? Um, anywhere in between and on both ends of the poles, other than a... Um, what they call a full preterist, which the church recognizes as heresy. Um, other than that particular extreme, everybody pretty much agrees that after the 69 weeks, the Messiah is cut off, or sometime in the first half of the 70th week, depending on how they see that first half of the 70th week, he's cut off. And that, that 70th week has two halves, and um, that... I would say everybody sort of agrees that Nero slash General Titus is a picture of the Antichrist who is to come, a type of the Antichrist who is to come. Um, and the sacking of Jerusalem and the temple are all a part of that, that prophecy typologically, not finally. All the rest of the details, guys argue about, 
day and night. I'm just going to tell you that day and night. Every commentator argues about it. Here's what we all agree on, and this is what I just want to get you to. There are four kingdoms, and the kingdom of God comes. And it comes in the Christ. And it comes, it's inaugurated at his first coming, it's, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's consummated at his second coming. You guys tracking with me on that? If you want me to work out all the rest of the details, I, I'll tell you, it's, that's where I have to tap out. <laughs> I don't have them. Anybody who claims they do seems to have more, more information than Jesus and the apostles. Right? Um, they, don't, they don't give us a lot more information. We can sort of work around the edges from there. Um, okay, qu- any questions? So when we get to 10 through 12, we're going to see a retelling of, with some more coloring of the same period. Four kingdoms, last one being Rome, coming of the kingdom of God. Um, but even then, I want to remind you guys, when the kingdom of God comes in Christ, it's inaugurated, but not consummated. In other words, they're thinking it's going to be consummated. John the Baptist thinks it's going to be consummated. He's like, how come, how come I'm, being, I'm here with Herod about to have my head cut off? <laughs> Aren't you the Messiah, right? Because I said you're going to come with your winnowing fork in your hand, and you're going to throw the chaff into unquenchable fire. Why isn't that happening yet, right? And Jesus' response is to go back to Isaiah and say this is the time of the Jubilee not the time of judgment or vengeance. Um, That's coming later, right? So that's going to come later um, at his return. So that's that's the rough outline. If you want to get into too many more details, now you're in debates. I'm not interested in having this morning. But um, I'll have it with you at breakfast. You come to breakfast. We can talk all about it. So, all right. Um, next week, we'll look at Daniel 8 through 10 and, um, and talk about, you know, sort of sum up Daniel's um, perspective, and then we'll move to a prophetic perspective, then we'll move to Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, all right, so let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning for the chance that we have to consider your word. Um, we're thankful that you revealed to Daniel um, the kingdoms that would precede the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of the Christ who would be cut off for us. Um, We pray that we would trust in him. We are thankful his kingdom has been inaugurated. We long for its consummation. We pray for that with John that Jesus would come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, gentlemen. If you're in a kind of breakfast, we're going to Old River Grill on Brimholland. So, Callaway. Old, yeah. That's called Old River Grill. It's on the wrong side of the river to be Old River.